Assalamu alaikum. Hello and welcome to the Voice of Islam Living History Program. My name is Dr. Muhammad Iqbal and I'll be your host for this program. As listeners will know, the Living History team have embarked on a seven-part series on the history of money and trade. In the modern world, there is a common saying, especially in the West, that money makes the world go round. The phrase basically means that everything in the world would stop without money, and to some extent, this statement is true. Without money, you cannot afford a shelter on your head, buy the food to survive or go from point A to point B, etc. In part one of this series, entitled Cows and Crops to Coin Trade, my fellow panellists and I explored the origins of early trade and money. In part two of the series entitled The Rise of the Great Eurasian Empires, we looked at the way gold and silver took central stage in trade and conquest that shaped many of the large and influential empires. In part three, entitled Worlds of Conquerors, Prophets and Reformers, we looked at the role religion played in shaping empires and trade between nations and empires. In particular, we looked at the rise of Christianity and Islam and their impact on the world. In part four, entitled Islam, a bridge between East and West, we looked at how the Muslims picked up new ideas from India, China and the Greeks and how they refined many of these and passed them on to Europe. We also looked at the fragmentation of the Muslim world and how China became the most powerful land and sea power during the Yuan and the Ming dynasties. In part five of the series, The Making of a European World, we looked at the rise of the various European empires and the decline and subjugation of the Muslim and Chinese civilizations. We also looked at the rise of France, Germany and the United States that came to challenge Britain's hegemony in the world that was dominated by Europe. In part six of this series, entitled The Clash of Capitalism and Communism, we looked at the clash of capitalism that led to two world wars and the rise of the United States as the superpower and the confrontation with communism. We also explored the tensions and conflicts between the West and the Muslim world and between the West and China and Russia and the critical role played by currency wars and trade wars. In today's uh, program, which is the final part of the seven-part series on the history of money and trade, this program is entitled The Birth of a New World Order. To explore the fascinating developments in relation to this, I'm once again joined by my panellists, Arif Ahmed and Munir Ahmed. Assalamualaikum to both of you. Assalamualaikum. So before we um, go on to cover this sort of final topic, just uh, a, a little background introduction. In the last program, we touched on the work of the great geostrategist Sir Halford Mackinder. So let's start from there again, Arif, and if you could to uh, just take us uh, as a reminder of uh, these great work uh, in 1904. Yes, so just as a reminder, in 1904, Sir Halford Mackinder, who was considered to be one of the founding fathers of geopolitics and geostrategy, presented a paper called The Geographical Pivot of History to the Royal Geographical Society that advanced his famous heartland theory. Uh, we did cover this in the last program, but in this paper, Mackinder divided the whole world into three key components to explain important geostrategic issues. At the end of the First World War, 
or the Great War. He published his new book in 1919, which was entitled Democratic Ideals and Reality, A Study in the Politics of Reconstruction. And in this book, he expanded his theory of the heartland. Um, The most famous quote from this book on page 150 reads as follows. Who rules East Europe commands the heartland. Who rules the heartland commands the world island. Who rules the world island commands the world. So you can see how he was angling and talking about the importance of different areas of the world. Uh, And this message was aimed at the world's statesmen gathering for the Paris Peace Conference after the end of World War I. It highlighted the importance of Eastern Europe as a strategic route to the heartland, thus the need to have buffer or a strip of states to separate Germany and Russia. The vital question was how to secure control for the heartland, and throughout the 19th century the Western powers had combined, usually successfully, to prevent the Russian expansion and domination. Mackinder had held, uh, or held that effective political domination of the heartland by a single power had been unattainable in the past because of geological and geographic considerations. However, um, Mackinder outlined the following ways in which the heartland might become a springboard for global domination in the 20th century. Firstly, he suggested a successful invasion of Russia by a West European nation, most probably Germany, as it happened to be in Second World War anyway, Mackinder believed that the introduction of the railroad had removed the heartland's invulnerability to land invasion. In Mackinder's words, who rules East Europe commands the heartland. The second point he made is that a Russo-German alliance was something to be feared, and before 1917, both countries were ruled by autocrats, the Tsar and the Kaiser and both could have been attracted to an alliance against the democratic powers of Western Europe. The U.S. was isolationist regarding European affairs until it became a participant of World War I, as we discussed in the previous program. Germany would have contributed to such an alliance, its formidable army and its large and growing sea power. But again, we saw that the Second World War ensured that Germany invaded Russia, and so that was not to happen in terms of an alliance. And then the final point, which is important uh, for our current world affairs, is suggested that conquest of Russia by a Sino-Japanese empire. Now, it doesn't have to be conquest, as we'll see, but you can see he was talking about a merging of an Asian power and Russia uh, as well. So the combined empire's large East Asian coastline would also provide the potential for it to become a major sea power. One of Mackinder's personal objectives was to warn Britain that its traditional reliance on sea power may have been very useful to conquer non-European nations. However, it would become a weakness as improved land transport opened up the heartland for invasion and or industrialization. With this in mind, perhaps it was inevitable that World War I took place and by drawing in the United States, Great Britain got the outcome it needed. So uh, Munir, we covered briefly um, uh, the the League of Nations creation, but just take us through the importance of that. Yeah, President Woodrow Wilson of the United States, whilst working out the peace treaty in the Palace of Versailles with 51 other nations, suggested the setting up of a council called the League of Nations so that wars could be prevented 
But as we saw in the last programme, this proved to be a pipe dream. The Second World War proved to be even bigger. It was the largest and the bloodiest conflict in human history, resulting in the death of over 55 to 60 million people, including 17 million Soviet citizens, and transforming the international order. And after the Second World War, the United States was the dominant economy and positioned itself as the leader of the free world and committed itself to containing communism, known as Truman Doctrine, and lent support to countries fighting wars against communist revolutionaries. In the eyes of many independent historians and political commentators, the US geopolitical leadership has shown itself in two very different ways after the Second World War, thus attracting much admiration and, of course, much criticism also. Admiration was shown for the US desire to build law-based multilateral institutions like the United Nations and associated institutions and to support um, uh, region institutions such as the European Community, which later became the European Union. On the other hand, um, the US has been criticised for its cynical exercise of power for narrow US interests, as often noted by leading thinkers like Professor Noam Chomsky and also noted by Professor Jeffrey Sachs in his book The Age of Globalization. And I quote from his uh, book, which listeners must read. It's a fantastic book. And Professor Sachs says, While the United States did not directly colonize countries after World War II, it used its vast military power and economic leverage repeatedly and often brutally to put into power governments that would favor U.S. business and security interests and to remove from power governments that opposed U.S. prerogatives. Regime change operations, meaning U.S.-led invasions, coups and subterfuges, to bring down foreign governments that the U.S. officials deemed hostile to U.S. interests became a mainstay of U.S. foreign policy, end of quote. In the 1960s and 1970s, the United States supported military coups and throughout Latin America and Southeast Asia. In the 1980, the U.S. funded wars and trained militants in West Asia and Central America. From the 1990s to the late 2010s, the U.S. fought several wars in the Middle East with massive numbers of U.S. and European soldiers on the ground, and these were extended to Central Asia and North Africa, including Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and Libya. So you can see where the admiration and criticism lines are drawn, uh, Arif. Yes, and if we take one of the, the main wars, which was the Gulf War. So in the run-up first Gulf War against Iraq in 1991, uh, the then President of the United States, George Bush Sr., had declared to the United Nations that the U.S. was setting out to create a new world order. Although the President of the United States and Western media dressed up the dismantling of Iraq as a moral mission to establish a just and peaceful new world order, many others felt that there was an ulterior motive, namely the access to and control of cheap oil. John Pilger, in his book, The New Rulers of the World, points to this fact by citing comments of Brigadier General William Looney, um, who was the U.S. Air Force Director of the bombing of Iraq. And his quote is as follows. They know we own the country. We dictate the way they live and talk. 
And that's what's great about America right now. It's a good thing, especially when there is a lot of oil there we need. So you can't see any more clear terms what the motive actually <laughs> absolutely, was. Absolutely, absolutely. The display of uh, U.S. firepower in 1991 to destroy Iraq, the dismantling of the Soviet Union and the submission of the Muslim world, with the exception of Iran, of course, resulted in a high degree of triumphalism in the West. In 1992, Francis Fukuyama, a prominent political economist, wrote a popular book called The End of History and the Last Man and declared rather arrogantly, that the U.S. and the West had effectively brought an end to history itself. Fukuyama believed that the advent and success of Western liberal democracy may signal the end point of humanity's socio-cultural evolution and the final form of human government, the height of arrogance. Uh, absolutely, say. and uh, it was interesting that Fukuyama saw himself as a champion of liberal democracy and capitalism, and perhaps he was trying to follow in the footsteps of Karl Marx, who was the champion of socialism and communism. Uh, Fukuyama's position totally contradicted that of Karl Marx, who predicted that communism would displace capitalism. Marx had predicted that capitalism inevitably would lead to internal tensions uh, like the previous socio-economic systems that would lead to its self-destruction and replacement by a new system known as a socialist mode of production. Um, his position was obviously challenged by a number of prominent Western thinkers. Interestingly, Fukuyama uh, had been a former student of the highly influential political scientist Samuel Huntington from Harvard University, who felt that the triumphant behaviour amongst many commentators in the West was a bit misplaced. So in 1996, uh, Huntington went on to publish his highly controversial book, The Clash of Civilizations and the Remaking of World Order, pointing to a reality that the West still had some major contenders. Huntington did not believe that history had ended, unlike Fukuyama, and set out the thesis that people's cultural and religious identities will be the primary source of conflict in the post-Cold War world. As a warning to Western world, Huntington argued that future wars would be fought not between countries, but between cultures. Huntington argued that in the past world, history was mainly about the struggles between monarchs, nations and ideologies, such as that seen within Western civilization. However, after the end of the Cold War, world politics moved into a new phase in which non-Western civilizations were no longer the exploited recipients of Western civilization but saw themselves as important actors wanting to be involved in shaping the world. Manit, agree? Yes, absolutely. So with a humiliated and subjugated Muslim world, a crumbling Russian economic and political system, a China that was keeping its head down and quietly developing its economy, a number of US right-wings or neoconservative figures went on to set up, in 1997, the project of the new American century, the PNAC. This think tank, based in Washington, D.C., focused on the United States' foreign policy and was founded by two highly prominent neoconservatives, William Crystal and Robert Kagan. And from the 25 people who signed the PNAC's founding statement of principles, 
10 went on to serve in the administration of the US, President George W. Bush, including Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, and Paul Wolfowitz. The September the 11th terrorist attack on, on US in 2000 not only shook the US, they shook the rest of the world. The end of history was cited by some commentators as a symbol of the supposed naive and undue optimism of the Western world during the 1990s in thinking that the end of the Cold War also represented the end of major global conflict. In the weeks after the attacks, Fareed Zakaria, a prominent anchor at CNN, called the events the end of the end of history. Whilst George George Will, another prominent commentator, wrote that history had returned from vacation. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Fukuyama must have been (laughs) hiding in his corner somewhere. Yes. The Gulf Wars of uh, 1991 and uh, 2003 have proved to be a great disaster, not only for Iraq and the Middle East region, but much of the world, including the United States. The primary reason why Iraq was attacked and destroyed in 1991 was that it was apparently developing weapons of mass destruction, WMDs. Once these were destroyed, then peace and freedom should have returned to Iraq. However, on the 15th of December 1998, the International Atomic Energy Agency reported that it had eliminated Iraq's nuclear weapons program. Scott Ritter, who had served for five years as a senior UNSCOM, UNSCOM, which is a United Nations agency uh, a weapons inspector, agreed, adding that, and I quote, if I had to quantify Iraq's threat, I would say it's zero. That's what he said. However, facts on the ground and truth mattered little to those who wielded power. And in 2003, George Bush, the President of the United States, and Tony Blair, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, used fabricated evidence to accuse Iraq of having WMDs, and harbouring al-Qaeda terrorists. The al-Qaeda accusation was a total nonsense, and it was clear to many that they were using the mainstream media to gain support for an attack on Iraq. As it turned out, no WMDs were found in Iraq after a thorough search. Independent inspectors confirmed that Iraq's chemical weapons had been totally destroyed by Iraq and Western inspectors after the first Gulf War in 1991, as early as that. So, terrible uh, level of lying. Absolutely. And although we now know uh, there were no uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, uh, the effects of WMDs can be devastating. Just ask anyone who witnessed Hiroshima or Nagasaki, where the atomic uh, bombs were dropped on, of the Solomon Islands, where the US tested the WMDs. Uh, Perhaps something which is less known is that during the Gulf War, Western powers was shown to be complicit in using depleted uranium, which is a a weapon of mass destruction, against the Iraqis uh, in a form of nuclear warfare. Now, reliable reports emerged that showed a dramatic jump in miscarriages and premature births amongst Iraqi women, particularly in areas where heavy US military operations occurred, such as in Fallujah. Official Iraqi government statistics also showed that prior to the outbreak of the first Gulf War in 1991, the rate of cancer cases in Iraq was 40 out of 100,000 people. But by 1995, it had increased to 800 uh, out of 100,000 people. That's a 20-fold increase. 
and by 2005 it had doubled again to at least 1,600 out of 100,000 people. And current estimates show that the increasing trend is continuing. Now, Professor Doug Rock, who is the U.S. Army physicist who was given the responsibility of cleaning up the nuclear contamination in Kuwait following the use of depleted uranium weapons by the U.S. forces, made the following comments in Pilger's book. And he stated as follows. In the Gulf War, well over 300 tonnes were fired. That's 300 tonnes of depleted uranium. An A-10 Warthog attack aircraft fired over 900,000 rounds. Each individual round was 300 grams of solid uranium-238. When a tank fired its shells, each round contained over 4,500 grams of solid uranium. These rounds were not coated, they're not tipped, they're solid uranium. Moreover, we have evidence to suggest that they were mixed with plutonium, which is also radioactive. And what happened in the Gulf War was a form of nuclear warfare. In view of some of these alarming findings, many ask why the United Nations did not intervene when these violations were taking place. Unfortunately, there is an increasingly common view now that the United Nations is controlled by the United States and often serves Western interests at the expense of other nations. The dominant Western view with regard to the United Nations was well expressed in 1992 by Francis Fukuyama, who had served in the Reagan-Bush State Department, stating that the United Nations is, and I quote from Fukuyama, perfectly serviceable as an instrument of America unilateralism and indeed may be the primary mechanism through which that unilateralism will be exercised in the future. And so it was. His prediction proved accurate, presumably because it was based on consistent practice going back to the early days of the United Nations. At that time, the state of the world guaranteed that the UN would be virtually an instrument of US power. In its early days, the institution was greatly admired by Western nations. However, distaste for it increased notably in subsequent years as independent countries questioned policies of US and Western nations. Professor Noam Chomsky in Hegemony or Survival, one of his best books, notes, and I quote, when the United Nations fails to serve as an instrument of American unilateralism, as Fukuyama put it, on issues of elite concern, it is dismissed. One of many illustrations is the record of vetoes. Since the 1960s, the U.S. has been far in the lead in vetoing Security Council resolutions on a wide range of issues, even those calling on states to observe international law. Britain is second, France and Russia far behind. Even that record is skewed by the fact that Washington's enormous power often compels the weakening of resolutions to which it objects or keeps crucial matters off the agenda entirely. So such hypocrisy, Munir. It is, it is, because the issue of the veto was entirely ignored during the preparation of the Iraq invasion by the Bush-Blair administration in 2003. France's threat to veto a UN declaration of war was bitterly condemned. President Chirac of France and German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder accepted the will of their people, who were overwhelmingly against invading Iraq. 
and they were severely criticised by the US and UK. France and Germany were labelled as Old Europe, new definition, and ostracised by the United States administration. And those that agreed to follow the US blindly labelled as New Europe and widely praised. Noam Chomsky noted in uh, Hegemony on Survival, he quotes, In October 2002, a senior Bush administration official claimed we don't need the Security Council, so if it wants to stay relevant, then it has to give us similar authorities to that just granted by Congress, authority to use force at will. The stand was endorsed by the President and by the Secretary of State Colin Powell, who added that obviously the Council can always go on and have other discussions, but we will have the authority to do what we believe is necessary. So Bush and Blair brushed aside the United Nations and showed their contempt for international law and institutions as they prepared to attack Iraq. So Professor Noam Chomsky states, The US-UK leader issued an ultimatum to the United Nations Security Council. Capitulate in 24 hours or we will invade Iraq and impose a regime of our own choice. Without your meaningless seal of approval, we will do so crucially. Whether or not Saddam Hussein and his family leave the country, such aggressive forms of statements shows their shocking behaviour. Absolutely. In a world where justice and truth are hijacked by hypocritical and yet powerful political figures and nations, what is one to do? This was a dilemma faced by Dennis Halliday, the United Nations Humanitarian Coordinator in Iraq. At the end of the first Gulf War in 19, many nations and individuals like Dennis felt that the sanctions against Iraq should be lifted as they were cruel, ineffective and dangerous. However, the US was the controlling power at the UN and these requests and protests were ignored. So in 1996, in an infamous interview on the American Current Affairs program 60 Minutes, Madeleine Albright, the US ambassador to the United States had been asked, and I quote, we have heard that half a million children have died in Iraq. Is the price worth it? This was the host of the program asking Albright, and Albright replied, I think this is a very hard choice, but the price we think the price is worth it. She was, of course, speaking on behalf of the whole Clinton administration at that time. Yet in sharp contrast, Dennis Halliday had seen at first hand the devastating impact of these sanctions, which he and many others believe led to the deaths of more than 500,000 children under the age of five and hundreds of thousands of people of Iraq. And after a 34-year career with the United Nations, including as an assistant secretary general, Dennis Halliday resigned in 1998 when the UN refused to lift sanctions. And he wrote, I am resigning because the policy of economic sanctions is totally bankrupt, he wrote. We are in the process of destroying an entire society. It is as simple as that. 5,000 children are dying every month. I don't want to administer a program that results in figures like these. Such a principled person, honestly. Arif, 
Yes, so it's quite obvious that there will be many nations that often hold differing views to the United States, uh, and these nations may want to show respect to international law uh, and the United Nations. So let's explore how the United Nations and the West deal with these nations. Uh, Let's take the example of Pakistan and Turkey, as they are key Muslim countries that got caught up in the US wars against Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, When the US and the UK were making plans to attack Afghanistan following the 11th of September 2001 terrorist attacks in the USA, both Pakistan and Turkey showed immense sympathy for the United States and its citizens and expressed their outrage for the terrorist attacks in the US. However, as Afghanistan and Iraq were neighbouring countries to Pakistan and Turkey respectively, they did not want to be drawn into any war plans of the US and the UK. Now, the military campaign against Afghanistan began on 7th of October 2001 with the targeting of the Taliban regime, which the US believed was harbouring Osama bin Laden. According to the former Pakistani president, General Perez Musharraf, the Bush administration threatened to bomb Pakistan, and I quote, back to the Stone Age. Unquote, if Pakistan did not cooperate with America's war on Afghanistan. This was reported in the Guardian newspaper of 22nd of September 2006. In an interview uh, that was aired on CBS television in 2006, General Musharraf said the threat was delivered by the Assistant Secretary of State, Richard Armitage, in conversations with the Pakistan Intelligence Director. Uh, General Musharraf told CBS he was stunned at the bluntness of the US approach in the aftermath of the attacks, and so he had no choice but to comply with the US demand. Whilst Mr Armitage disputed the language used, CBS said he did not deny that Pakistan was put on notice to help America's war effort. Now we'll carry on with how how Turkey was dealt with, but this is probably a good place for us to stop for part one. So we'll be back with listeners shortly. Please, listeners, do give us your feedback on our program, this and many others. Our Twitter hashtag is at VI Living History. So we'll be back for part two shortly. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to part two of this uh, final uh, program of the series uh, called The Birth of a New World Order. So in the first part, we were just talking about how the uh, United States and the United Nations, uh, because of the influence of the United States, uh, treats other nations um, that uh, have to support the United States. We talked about what Pakistan was expected to do in the invasion of Afghanistan and uh, how Musharraf had to cave in to U.S. demands. Um, Let's now deal with how the United States dealt with Turkey in its relation to the planned attack on uh, Iraq as well. Of course, prior to um, the attack, a lot of effort was being made to uh, persuade nations and through the media all the time in preparation for this attack. Majority of the Turkish population was against this uh, action. And of course, the politicians in Turkey um, also responded to that and didn't really want to play a part uh, in this, which annoyed the Americans. Munir, if you could just uh, take us uh, through that. So despite immense arm twisting of the Turkish government and threats, the Turkish parliament refused to allow US troops to be deployed from Turkey. Steve Wiseman of New York Times noted his disappointment on the 30th of March 2003 in quote, The ground war has been hampered because Turkey did not accept its role as host of the Northern Front forces, and again for political reasons its government was too weak 
in the face of anti-war feelings, unquote. So the message from the US and war hawks in the media was quite clear. Strong governments disregard their population and accept the role assigned to them by the global rulers, the West. Weak governments succumb to the will of the 95% of their population. The hypocrisy of US-UK position of being champions of democracy and international law was exposed by the neoconservative war hawk and Pentagon planner Paul Wolfowitz. As noted by Chomsky, uh, quote, he too berated the Turkish government for its misbehaviour but went on to condemn the military who did not play the strong leadership role that we would have expected but betrayed weakness in permitting the government to honour near-unanimous public opinion. Turkey, he argued, had therefore to step up and say, we made a mistake. Let's figure out how we can be as helpful as possible to the Americans, unquote. As you can see, the <laughs> conformity is there and the hypocrisy is there. Absolutely. Uh, many uh, American politicians and media figures believe in the idea of American exceptionalism, a belief that the United States is inherently different from other nations. Its proponents argue that the values, political system and historical development of the US are unique in human history and so a unipolar world led by the US should be accepted by others without any question. In fact, this was something conveyed by President Barack Obama in an address in uh, uh, 2009. So, you know, it's just amazing the arrogance and hypocrisy, Arif, isn't it? Yes, of course. So, you know, whilst no doubt the United States has much to be proud of, there are other nations that have a proud history. Um, Despite external pressures, these countries, these nations have a strong desire to shape their own destiny. They have strong institutions and strategic thinkers that guide them through difficult times and complex relationships. So let's look at three uh, of these nations that refuse to accept a unipolar world led by the US and have increasingly pushed for a multipolar world. These nations are Iran, Russia and China. Uh, and the reasons will become obvious to anybody who understands history and geostrategy. Their relationship with the US and the wider Western world is particularly illuminating. These nations are beginning to have a significant impact on the new world order. Uh, that is emerging, uh, which is a multipolar world. Now, Iran or ancient Persia has a rich history, which we've covered in many of our programs in the living history, and modern Iran has had a complex and tense relationship with the West, especially the United States since the Iranian revolution of uh, 1979. Iran demonstrated moral courage and integrity by refusing to join the US-led attack on Iraq in 1991 and in 2003, despite a long war with Iraq and their hatred of Saddam Hussein. Unlike some other Muslim countries in the region, Iran was totally opposed to Western interference in the Persian Gulf. However, over the many years, Iran managed to establish strong links with the Shia groups in Iraq, something which many analysts had predicted before the Gulf War. With the ongoing turmoil and destruction of Iraq over the next few years, the US and UK came to be seen as illegitimate occupying forces and significant resistance movements built up. Meanwhile, Iran became an important regional player and a major influencer in Iraqi politics. 
Despite the concerted effort by the West to isolate Iran and despite the heavy sanctions for over 30 to 40 years, Iran's leadership refused to bow and submit to Western policies and pressures. That is quite an amazing, uh, really. Uh, absolutely. Who could have foreseen this at the beginning? Because it was, it's clear that the US and the West had gained very little in Iraq, even though this was predicted by several wise and independent commentators. And actually, all that it did was create uh, an environment for the rise of terror groups such as ISIS. Uh, moreover, the legal and futile wars had wrecked the American economy. According to a 2019 report from the Watson Institute of International and Public Affairs at Brown University, American taxpayers spent $6.4 trillion on post-9-11 wars uh, and military action in the Middle East and Asia. The report also found that more than 801,000 people had died as a direct result of fighting, and of these, more than 335,000 were civilians, and a total of 21 million people had been displaced due to violence. So you can see that the cost to the region and to the US was enormous, both in financial terms and in damage to their reputation as well. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, Iran continued to have its influence grow in the region, as we've seen. So let's look at the second important nation, and that's uh, Russia. A Russian History does not stretch as long as that of Iran and China, but it has a very proud history over the last few hundred years. Although Russia had more than stood its ground against other major European powers, including the French, the British and the Germans, and after Second World War gave the United States some stiff competition, by 1991 the communist-led Soviet Union had lost the Cold War to the US and the West broadly. Uh, So under Gorbachev, the Soviet Union came to an end and Yeltsin took over the Russian Federation and the the Western uh, financial world released their sharks to strip uh, resources from Russia and, you know, bring it to its uh, knees. We all remember the hard times that uh, uh, Russia went through. But then, of course, by the year 2000, uh, Munir, changes uh, were beginning to take. They're a proud nation, the Russians, but just take us through that Absolutely, change. Sir. Absolutely. Sir. Just under a decade later, on the 7th of May 2000, Vladimir Putin came to power and as a strong leader succeeded in bringing some stability to Russia. President Putin took advantage of the US war on terror to crush the Chechenian rebels seeking independence from Russia and set out to secure Russian borders. Meanwhile, he watched the lone superpower, the US, display its military power in Afghanistan, in Iraq and Yugoslavia, knowing that Russia was powerless to have any impact on US policies and behaviours. So by 2010 and 2011, Russia had a stable economy, if not a strong economy, a modernised military, and a desire to rebuild international links and alliances. Russia was back on its feet and ready to be taken seriously by the world, including the US. The testbed proved to be Syria, where Russian opposition to US-led regime change and subsequent intervention at the request of the Syrian government brought the US and the European planned New World to a shuddering halt. That was quite an important development and its consequences are now being played out in Ukraine and elsewhere as well. So let's move to the third important country, and that's China. China, as we've seen in many of our programs, has had an amazing history. And modern China presents some unique challenges to the modern world, especially the current 
hegemon, the United States. This is something that we have covered, as I said, uh, in the four-part series on China, and I would urge listeners to uh, follow those programs. Under the charismatic leadership of Mao Zedong, China gained its independence from foreign powers by the mid-20th century, established its unity and economic stability. Under then the pragmatic leadership of Deng Xiaoping, China introduced far-reaching economic reforms in 1978-79, which started to transform China's economy. From the 1980s to the start of the Second Gulf War in 2003, China kept its head down and ensured they did not annoy the U.S., thus securing U.S. support for China becoming a member of the major global trade and financial institutions. China was allowed to join GATT, which is in relation to trade, and in 1982, uh, the IMF and World Bank in 1986, and the World Trade Organization in 2001. Arif, I think especially joining the World Trade Organization proved to be a major point for China's progress development. Just take us through. Yes, so when it joined uh, the World Trade Organization in 2001, this signaled the most explosive period uh, of China's growth. uh, And the strategic decisions that China's leadership had made were vindicated. China's per capita income when it joined the World Trade Organization was $2,900, which was similar to countries like Pakistan and Bhutan. But by 2015, it had grown to 14,400 US dollars. And in the same period, China's economy also went from being the sixth largest to the second largest in the world. No nation has ever moved so far and so fast. Um, I mean, according to some analysts, uh, China may already be the largest economy in the world. Uh, and even if it isn't, it's, it's a foregone conclusion that it will outstrip the US economy very soon. Uh, Chinese exports have already uh, overtaken American exports, and by 2011, they exceeded uh, them by a staggering 30%. Few people in the West, especially in the United States, are aware that the world has changed in many ways since the heyday of American power in the 1950s. And based on PPP, which is purchasing power parity in the 1950s, The U.S. had 27.3% of the world's GDP, while China only had 4.5%. By the end of the Cold War in 1990, America had 20.6% and China had 3.86%. However, by 2018, the U.S. has 15% and China has 18.6%. So you can see the enormous growth that's happened in a relatively short period of time. Now, one of the main benefits of this is that, according to the World Bank, more than 850 million Chinese people have been lifted out of extreme poverty. China's poverty rate fell from 88% in 1981 to 0.7% in 2015. And by 2020, China had eradicated poverty across the whole nation, something that no one could ever have dreamed of. I mean, this is really quite an amazing situation. And, you know, all these three nations have stood up and developed their nations, but stood up to, you know, Western pressures as well. Now, in um, 2013, the Chinese President Xi Jinping launched the very ambitious Belt and Road Initiative called the BRI, a global infrastructure development strategy that revives the old Silk Roads trade. In May 2017, 68 countries representing two-thirds of the world's population and half of its GDP gathered in Beijing for the first Belt and Road Initiative Summit. 
This gathering of Asian, European and African leaders symbolized the launch of the largest coordinated infrastructure investment plan in human history. Collectively, the assembled governments pledged to spend trillions of dollars in the coming decade to connect the world's largest population centers in a constellation of commerce and cultural exchanges in new Silk Road era. I mean, really ambitious planned, uh, Munir. Yeah, so the new world order being shaped by Western world now had an Asian challenger and China was now ready to assert its authority. Kishore Mahabubani, a highly respected diplomat and author of Has China Won, he writes, Now it is China, not America, that is taking the lead in building a new multilateral architecture, including the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the AIIB, and Belt and Road Initiative, the BRI. America opposed both of these initiatives. This didn't stop many of its key friends and allies from joining them. The UK, Germany, India and Vietnam joined as founding members of the AIIB, which is proving itself to be a better governed institution than the IMF and the World Bank, and its standards of corporate governance is higher and more transparent. Uh, in 1997, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, fearful of... Uh, what he called the challenger civilization that Mackinder talked about, wrote, and this is a quote from his uh, book, The Great Game, as well. Eurasia is the axial supercontinent. It is imperative that no Eurasian challenger emerges capable of dominating Eurasia and thus also of challenging America. These warnings were not too different from those of, as I say, Sir Halford Mackinder to the British establishment in his paper of 1904 and his book of 1919, which pointed to the dangers of Russian-German axis or a Sino-Russian axis, as I pointed out earlier. Over the last few decades, Russia and China have formed an alliance that grows in strategic importance to the leaders of both nations every day. Meanwhile, Iran has signed a significant 25-year development deal with China, the world's second-largest economy. China will soon, as we mentioned earlier, be the largest economy. Um, whilst Russia is not in economic power, it is a military giant, and combined with Iran's vast energy resources, these three nations pose a formidable challenge to the U.S. and the West as a whole. Um, and even Turkey is, you know, looking towards Eurasian development. Uh, Arif, yes, absolutely. So Turkey, uh, which is a member of NATO, is looking to join this new Eurasian consortium, as is nuclear armed and supposedly an ally of America, Pakistan, and even Africa is slowly being absorbed into China's new empire while the Arctic is being taken by Russia. Now, many economic and political commentators believe that the US cannot possibly compete under current conditions with a Eurasia that has fallen under the spell of military competent, economically vibrant, and culturally appealing Eurasian powers. Unless there is a total reinvigoration of the United States at the political, cultural, economic and military level, unless this is done, the 21st century will be dominated by a Russian-Chinese-led Eurasian New World Order. An increasing number of Western commentators are now openly questioning the wisdom of uh, US exceptionalism and triumphalism. They are beginning to point to the decline of US power. Uh, and I uh, said so there's a n number of different people you can relate to. And uh, w one of the key people is uh, Professor Graham Allison. Munir, do you want to? Yeah, Professor Graham Allison uh, is the director of the Belfer Centre 
for Science and International Affairs at Harvard University, wrote a fascinating piece uh, in 2012 in the Financial Times with the headline, The Solidities Trap, are, are the US and China headed for war? And in relation to the war between the Greek states, Thucydides had stated it was the rise of the Athens and the fear that this inspired in Sparta that made war inevitable. So you can see this whole development, you know, Sparta, Athens, then later on in Europe, um, the German speaking and uh, the, the Russian and the British, the sort of the battles between them. And now you've got this sort of ongoing battle between a nation power and uh, US and maybe other uh, uh, powers as well. As a, a warning and perhaps as a wake-up call, Samuel Huntington in The Clash of Civilization pointed out in 1996 that the Western belief in the universality of the West values and political system is naive. He also believed that there would be a major shift of economic, military and political powers from the West to the other civilizations of the world, more significantly to what he identified as the two challenger civilizations, Sinic, meaning the Chinese, and Islam, meaning the Muslim world. Perhaps he should have included the Russian Orthodox Christian civilization also, which increasingly sees itself alienated from the Western world and pivoting to the East. Broad generalizations are not always useful, especially when it comes to looking at the interaction between the Muslim world and the West. Huntington saw the whole of the Muslim world as a challenger to the West, but in reality, most of the Muslim world is in the pockets of the West, especially the wealthiest Gulf states, and the only one standing up to the Western world is Iran. Tarif, um, that was shown in the Syrian war. Uh. Absolutely. So, to those who are familiar with history and who have a deep understanding of geostrategic developments, the recent uh, Syrian war, which is obviously still ongoing, was a sort of phase three of the Gulf Wars, and it's shown the failings and the fault lines across several important regional and global players. Uh, this conflict has laid bare the deep mistrust and divisions that exist within the Muslim and the Christian worlds. And in the Syrian conflict, you had a predominantly Muslim country being dismantled and degraded by other Muslim countries, notably Saudi Arabia, Qatar and Turkey, uh, through Al-Qaeda-linked jihadist rebels whom the West promoted as monsters. You had innocent Syrian Muslims and Christians being killed by jihadi fighters who were being supplied by Western Christian nations through their Muslim affiliates in the Middle East. And you had nationalist Sunni Shia soldiers fighting militant jihadist Muslims and Western military. And so in effect you had a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran and ultimately you had a proxy war between the US and Russia. So it's a complete mess and truly a nightmare scenario for the poor Assyrians. Uh, and it's very much apocalyptic and perhaps a forerunner to Armageddon and maybe the Third World War. Absolutely. I mean, the, the Middle East is and has been one of the most important and yet troubled regions, as we covered in our four-part series on the Middle East as well. So listeners should follow that. Apart from its importance as the main provider of energy supplies that keep the world going, it is a region that is responsible for much instability and military conflicts. It is a region of the world that gave us some of the greatest religious figures that we revere, and it is a region that could decide, as Arif has said, the future of humanity. It is said to be the setting for Armageddon, a prophecy on which Jews, Christians and Muslims agree, a battle that will bring about great destruction. 
Now, this view is not just based on what secular academics and media pundits regard as outdated religious interpretations. It's based on hard reality of modern politics and geostrategic thinking. Take, for example, the euphoria of the white evangelical American Christians in getting Donald Trump elected as the President of the United States. The election of President Trump in 2016 was on the back of massive support from Christian fundamentalists in U.S., who saw Trump as someone to deliver on biblical end-of-days prophecy. Also, it is believed that President George W. Bush tried to sell the invasion of Iraq in the winter of 2002 to French President Jacques Chirac using biblical prophecy. According to President Chirac, George Bush called him by phone and said that when he looked at the Middle East, he saw Gog and Magog at work, and thus unfolding of biblical prophecies. Now, neither Chirac nor his office had any idea who the hell, uh, what the hell Gog and Magog were. So they asked the French Federation of Protestants, who rang up a professor in Switzerland, to find out for them uh, what all this was uh, about. So Munir, uh, you know, from a religious point of view, sort of second coming has been debated for a long time. Yes, it has. So from a religious point of view, although 2,000 years of waiting has passed. The Jews of the 21st century are still waiting for the coming of the Messiah, preceded by Prophet Elijah, riding his chariot from the skies. The Christians are waiting for the second advent of Jesus, the Son of God, Messiah, again descending from miraculously from the skies, thus making the rapture an end of times. A majority of the Muslim world are waiting for the coming of the Messiah and Mahdi, or the second coming of the Prophet Jesus, Messiah, and the Mahdi, the guide descending from the skies and thus marking the end of times. And in contrast, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is the only community that holds the view that no one ever comes from the skies. They believe that God has already raised a reformer, a saviour, the Messiah and Mahdi, but as in the case of previous prophets, he has faced immense opposition. So revival and reformation uh, are very common themes uh, amongst the world's major religions. And the second advent uh, of the Messiah, of the anointed one, who is going to revive the faith, is a hot topic of discussion. Um, Over 2,000 years ago, the Jews uh, awaited the Messiah to free them from bondage and revive the faith in accordance with the glorious and colorful prophecy. When Jesus Messiah actually came, they rejected him, claiming he was an imposter. And according to traditional Jewish interpretation, the Messiah would only come after the prophet Elijah or Elias would descend from the heavens. However, Jesus explained that the spirit of Elijah had already descended in the form of John the Baptist and there would be no opening up of the heavens and no chariots and angels rushing down to earth. Now, in a similar interpretation, the Amdiya Muslim community believes that the Messiah and Mahdi um, figure has already come in the form of Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian, who was born 1835 and died in 1908. And no one will come from the skies. Moreover, they claim that the world will not come to an end, but if the world continues to mock and reject the promised Messiah and Mahdi, then a severe punishment will come from God, including the Battle of uh, Armageddon. The founder of the Amdiya Muslim community claimed that his mission was twofold, to bring about the Reformation revival of Islam and to unite all uh, the major religions of the world. This explanation was rejected by Orthodox Muslims uh, as they expected a military messiah coming just as in the sort of past uh, uh, during the rise of uh, Christianity. 
Now, since its origins in 1889, the Amdi Muslim community has grown enormously and now spans over 210 countries, with members exceeding tens of millions. The community is seen by many as the most dynamic and fastest-growing international revival movement within Islam. And like all reformist communities that challenge the orthodoxy, the Amdiya Muslim community has had to face high levels of prejudice and persecution in several Muslim countries. As they say, time waits for no one, and it is um, possible that uh, some Jews, Christian and Muslim, will keep looking to the skies for another 2,000 years for the Messiah to send. Meanwhile, mankind will have moved on. The founder of the Amdiya Muslim community made this bold prophecy, which is worthy of note. And I'll just read a few words before we finish the program. O mankind, hearken, this is the prophecy of God who made the heavens and the earth. He will spread this movement in all the countries and will give it supremacy over all through reason and arguments. Remember, no one will descend from heaven. All our opponents who are living at present will die, and not one of them will see Jesus, son of Mary, descend from the sky. And then their children who survive them will also pass away, and none of them will see Jesus, son of Mary, coming down from the heavens. And the prophecy goes on, but you can see, So it is up to individuals to decide what is right for them as far as their faith goes. But this program is about history. This is about bringing in a new world order. And who knows what the future of Ahmadiyyat will be. But clearly, you know, religious reformers have their ways of influencing humanity and nation builders and emperors have their ways, as we've discussed throughout this series. So only God knows, if one believes in a God, of what the future for mankind holds. So I think as concluding remarks, hope listeners have enjoyed this um, uh, series of uh, programs. Uh, do please give us your feedback on what you think on Twitter hashtag at VI Living History and do visit our website www.voiceofislam.co.uk and under the programs you'll see a whole variety of uh, programs. Thank you um, Munir and Arif as well and to my other colleagues and panelists who've contributed to the uh, programs. And thank you to Shizad Sab for all the recordings uh, as well in this uh, series. Until next time, Assalamu Alaikum.